Welcome to today's episode of The Square. We're going to be talking with Dr. Kevin Burkhopes, who's the founder of Crossroads Education. But before we get into Crossroads, I'm really excited to have Sam Flores. Hi. Hi. <laughs> the director of Hugo. She's back with us. You've been in a couple Square episodes. A few. Yeah. yeah. So we're. I'm excited she's here because we're going to be actually taking some of the theoretical conversation that we have with Dr. Burkhopes. And, and you guys did a, a design sprint to make it practical. Right. So, um, Kevin, thank you so much for being here. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, we always kind of start off with your why. Why do you do what you do? You know, you've, you're, you've got a doctorate, so you're obviously really smart and could do a lot of different things. Why education? Uh, it's, it's pretty simple. The education is the great equalizer. Um, I, I'm wired to resent, I think like a lot of us are, injustices. Um, the biggest injustice that I think happens in, in the human world is that we're born within 1% of each other cognitively, but access to resources is how the gap is created. And uh, we have a system based on the idea that you don't get to choose who you're born to, you don't get to choose the neighborhood that you live in or the school that you go to, and if all three of those things or any of those things aren't great, uh, you're, you're pretty much done. You don't have much of an opportunity to rise above where, where you started. Um, a lot of us won the lottery and we don't even know it. And I'd like to create a system that is not based on winning the lottery or a small percentage of people that can joyfully thrive as, as uh, human beings. Yeah, wow. Well, and, and Kevin, when I first met you, you shared a story with me about giving access to education to a certain number of students, but in particular one, and I was curious if you remember that story that I'm talking about and if you don't mind sharing that with us today. Yeah, so a lot of us don't quite realize how much uh, trauma and, and uh, inequity that, that young people experience just on the way to school, let alone the, the things that they have to deal with because of what they look like and where they were born to and how they talk, um, among other things. So, you know, an example of that is, is, is really the story, I think, Sam, that you're talking about is that there's a, a young person that I've got a chance to work with as you know, the tens of thousands of students at, at this point, hundreds of thousands of students that we had uh, the privilege to have an opportunity to interact with. And this young man was very motivated and um, would go above and beyond trying to do and the right thing, right? So a lot of people talk about, well, you just got to work hard and you can get ahead and people don't want to work hard. They don't want it. Well, this kid wanted it. And he found a place where there was free Wi-Fi because he didn't have uh, connectivity at home like a lot of kids in urban rural areas uh, from poverty and uh, he found it in a public place uh, a hospital hospital has high high speed Wi-Fi uh, for general public use he was sitting outside the doors are operating opening and closing people are coming and going but here's a young African-American male sitting outside of a public institution and he was trying to submit homework and do homework through his LMS and he was arrested um, because of what he looked like and, and uh, what society thinks about young people uh, that are of color in public institutions. Those are things that you and I, uh, by the way that we look and the privilege that we carry because of that, never have to encounter. Mm -hmm. And uh, those are things that are, a lot of people are talking about right now. And, and I think it's a good dialogue uh, to have. And it is certainly a part of the uh, injustice that the education system is providing. Well, that's probably a really good transition to how Crossroads Education even came to be. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. I studied mathematics, and, you know, bachelor's, master's, and, and PhD. But the original um, process was I came from kind of two poles of poverty myself. 
and trying to understand my place in that, I was working on um, a degree path that was, you know, highly sought after, right? And, and people tell you, utility, go, go make money, financial institutions, whatever. I didn't really understand any of that. Um, I went down to uh, the border of North Carolina and Tennessee to hike as I was finishing up my bachelor's degree a little early and um, came across the school, applied, got hired pretty quickly. Uh, and next thing you know, I did that about five different times across the U.S. and found communities of poverty and, and low resource and worked in the schools that were there. Uh, learned a lot about what I didn't know. And of course, we all do that as we go through our 20s. Uh, we think we know everything. Uh, I, I certainly didn't, but I also didn't understand the extent of the difference between uh, poverty and, and uh, high resource or just any resource. And, and what we kind of uncovered along the way, uh, this was a lot of very smart people that I got a chance to be around, was that there are workforce issues in education, but not the way everybody's describing. And uh, there's great people in it. They don't stay. And the reason that they don't stay isn't because they're not passionate about working with kids. It's because we expect too much of them. So we started with, what if, what if children were a part of that that could help with the workload on the classroom teacher? You know, she's asked to do like 100 hours of work a week is what we've figured out. No one can do that, uh, especially for the pay that she's required to, to do. And um, if kids are a part of that, they're, they're the best teachers of each other anyways. They listen to each other. They have shared language. So that was the first model. We created a tutoring system and a strategy where peers are tutoring each other. Uh, we scaled that very quickly uh, over the last 10 years to the entire uh, education sector, high, higher ed through K through 12. And then it evolved where we started to realize that the classroom and the operating system that surrounds it is based on one learning event, right? The classroom teacher is sort of small group instruction, big group instruction, that's it. Uh, rows and columns of chairs and places where fun goes to die. And the teacher doesn't like it, the kid like it. nobody likes it. Uh, so if that's true, what, what, is, what is the next uh, stage of the evolution of that? We think the classroom becomes a smart classroom the same way that a phone became a smartphone. Uh, we think the operating system behind the classroom used to be the way that phones were, which is calling and uh, you know, hearing, now becomes seven learning events, right? Private tutoring is a thing, it's ubiquitous, it's, it's everywhere, but it's highly inequitable unless we bring it into the, the classroom during the day. Uh, peer tutoring. Uh, small group instruction, adult interaction and mentorship, um, adaptive curriculum. These are the things now that we're building into this classroom. And then how do you build a classroom for that? And that's what we're working on now and, and things that Sam really helped us with over the last uh, three, four months of conceptualizing the, the future of this smart classroom, but also the operating system that drives it. Well, that's probably a good place to kick off talking a little bit about the design sprint you did. Right. I mean, it, it has been really fun to learn about what he's, what Kevin is speaking about with the adaptive curriculum and really kind of conceptualizing this. What's new to me is the fact that you don't have to go to a classroom for, mm -hmm. what is it, seven hours a day? Yeah. I, I don't know how long students are in <laughs> classrooms today. Too long. But <laughs> that you can actually do your education, you know, 
out in the woods. If you have a project that, that calls for that, you can get badges um, that are digital that are part of that learning environment. And you can have performance metrics that really build on an education platform so that you are you know, personalizing that type of education. And so that's why I think you know, working with Crossroads has been so fun. Um, because one of the things that we worked on together was really looking at distributing that type of education system. And, and, and really, you know, it, it's a Crossroads vision that we helped with. Uh, and Kevin, I know that, you know, as a part of that vision, you know, you spoke to us quite a bit about what it might mean for these underserved communities to have distributed platforms for education. And if you want to speak a little bit to that and um, what we helped with as far as those seven learning events. Yeah, I think one of the, the coolest parts about doing what I do, right, being a CEO, you, you, build, you build teams. Um, you build resource for those teams to execute, but you also get a chance to work with really, really smart people that don't work for you, which is what Sam and I and, and her, uh, her team got a chance to do is I, I need outside influences that don't carry the lenses that I carry. I need people that look at it with a fresh lens and, and, you know, cause I'm in the weeds. I've been fighting this for almost 20 years. I assumed certain things, uh, like everybody surely knows that education is the largest food production and delivery mechanism in the US. And surely everybody knows that it's the largest childcare uh, and healthcare part of, of children's life. Like surely people know that. Uh, no, they, they don't. Uh, I, I know that because I'm in the weeds every day, but when I get a chance to talk to really uh, intelligent and, and um, you know good communicators and designers like Sam's team, it brings these new lenses to the to the the creative process, and inherently, everything we do is creative because it's never been done before. And so, I need those sort of creative influences who uh, bring different ideas and different um, you know thoughts to what what we're trying to accomplish. And it, it just moves everything at light speed when you have that sort of creativity in the same room. Tell me a little bit about some of the specific design elements that you guys kind of discovered or, or came up with during the design sprint? Yeah, I mean, what we did as a part of the design sprint was we didn't just take Kevin's concept and our design skills and put them together. We actually also talked to the community. I mean, we reached out to a lot of different people. We talked to educators who are struggling right now with hybrid education. We talked to pod leaders mm -hmm. um, who are teaching students at home. And we talked to parents who are a major support system for these students and who provide that support system to them. And in some cases, some of the parents we spoke to um, had removed themselves from their um, careers in order to continue to help support their children. And then some parents we talked to didn't have that capability and their um, their children were struggling. And so um, really speaking to the community, you know, we uh, knew from Kevin what you were just saying is that the school system is the, the most the largest provider of meals to um, th those aged kids throughout our communities. Um, but what you also found is that there are certain um, things that change the confidence level of students. So the ability to have a shower in the morning, um, the ability to sleep a good amount of, of time, um, just the ability to have something in their bellies every day that changes their confidence level and their ability to perform at school. And so finding these things out, you know, Kevin knew this in the back of his mind, finding this out first for our team was important to start looking at what needs to go into these distributed education facilities. So we looked at, you know, providing spaces for laundry um, to do their laundry. We looked at secure entrances at the facilities to make sure that all of the students are secure.
secure. And then we provided areas of focus, we provided areas of collaboration and spontaneous events as well. Um, we even created what we called the class plant instead of a class pet, <laughs> where students could grow plants together and, and learn That's a little awesome. bit about, you know, <laughs> agricultural experiences or botany. Yeah. Um, and we also um, tied that back into the community. We wanted to provide space that was not only distributed education that provided technology back to the community's um, students, but also the communities themselves. So these facilities could be accessed by multiple um, different groups. And then we also looked at, as far as the design sprint that we did, which was only three weeks, and we got through a lot of content Probably in three sure weeks, did. I feel like. <laughs> um, because we provided multiple solutions. We looked at, you know, the we looked in, in depth at what type of urban space has been vacated during the pandemic. And we did some analysis over what um, space is actually gonna come back and be released, but what space is not gonna be released. And those, we looked at those spaces as providing these opportunities for Crossroads Education to have yeah. these um, smaller classrooms. And then also ground up facilities that might be, um, you know, put into neighborhoods or uh, lower socioeconomic spaces that can provide that access to those types of communities. Was there, was there something that through the process of the three weeks, Kevin, that was surprising to you? I think it's surprising for a lot of people to understand that, that schools as they stand are, are some of the highest capitalized businesses in low resource communities. And then how do you take, uh, let me give you an example of what I mean. So. Uh, a school in the neighborhoods that my companies um, currently live in and, and office space that we have since 2016 is the lowest resource community in Indianapolis. Uh, the schools that are within a 10 to 15 minute walking distance of these, um, my facility, which is, is over here on, uh, on the near west side, is uh, they, they have an annual revenue between six and seven million. That's a pretty big company if yeah. you really think about a seven million uh, annualized, you know, what, what's the monthly recurring revenue for that for that business? If you think that way, because of the, the state funding, how does that resource get used to benefit the community? Obviously, we're feeding the kids, um, their safety and, and uh, health care, and, and then the, the sort of baseline education that's being provided, but how else, right? A $7 million company in a neighborhood could do a lot of things. What do they do? And, and how does that resource impact the community? Like, are there jobs that, that people are working on? A typical $7 million company, you'd be able to have people from the community working in that facility. You don't see that in education. You know, 80 to 90% of the teachers at these schools live somewhere else uh, and don't look like that they serve. And, and so I think the surprising thing was that what we know in housing and, and other industries that has failed epically, like condensing poverty into one building, People just don't seem to know that that's obviously epically failing in education yeah. too, right. right? And so the, the conversations with Sam and her, her designers, uh, which was a, a really talented group of people that brought different lenses, it was it was somewhat surprising in what they didn't know and then somewhat surprising of what I I assumed I knew, um, which is you know some of the design elements like micro schools are a thing. What if they were in single family housing? Mm -hmm. Right. What if you choose to go to school down the hallway and what if you could choose to go to school in different ways? And then what's what, what would what would that look like? You know, it certainly isn't going to look like a, a, a jail like what we build schools to be like now. Right. You don't want that in your neighborhood. Uh, so I, I would say those things are surprising. It's what I I assumed. And then what um, 
you know, what others knew. And then I, you know, I made assumptions that turned out to be false because uh, when you work with talented people, that's always true. Let me ask you this about the design. You, you guys looked at a lot of different things and I know that there are a lot of pros for virtual learning, Mm -hmm. but when you think about the design, how do you accommodate the idea of in-person learning? Because you still have things like labs and that right. human connection that people, you know, there's 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 a balance there. How do you straddle that? Right. I mean, th- two things. You know, one, the support system that students are provided is so important. Mm-hmm. So having in-person teachers, um, having their parents helping them get on, having the nurses, and, and in some cases the school nurses are, you know, hugely beneficial to some students that don't otherwise, you know, have that type of access to healthcare. Um, but, you know, all of that is very important as far as, you know, in person. Something we looked at with these distributed facilities is knowing that we still need to provide for um, social distancing and learning. But we also know from our research, from talking to the communities, that parents see their kids' light kind of mm-hmm. just dimming because they don't get to see their friends. Yeah. And that is a huge part of building that social connection that, you know, readies you for career or readies readies you just for life in general and being able to make social connections. Um, So when we looked at the design, we made sure that we were providing enough space so that these facilities could grow in the amount of students that they have once, you know, past COVID times and social distancing, but also could accommodate students and social distancing as well. Um, And we provided, um, you know, along with technologies for this hybrid experience, we provided areas where students could connect in person with their digital counterparts so that this type of hybridity isn't just I'm here on Tuesdays, Thursdays, you're there on Monday, Wednesdays, therefore you're not my classmate. We wanted to create that connection that you're always my classmate, whether you're here in person with me or you're hybrid. Right. And, you know, Kevin, one of the things that you kind of hit on, too, is this idea that you really want to democratize education for all and you want to democratize access to the support systems that are so necessary. I mean, we did a full analysis on what type of support systems a a school, a crossroads classroom might have in a city versus a suburban neighborhood, for instance. And I think it's interesting because you also have another concept that you're working on called the community commons, which isn't just leveraging these support systems, but it actually is creating a new and better support system for a whole community. And I'm curious if you might want to share a little bit about that opportunity from Crossroads Education. Yeah. Yeah, I'd love to. I, I spent a lot of time understanding the ecosystems of urban areas and rural areas. Um, you know, the, there's sort of these different entities, right? There's family and whatever that means. There's a community center of some sort, there's school, uh, there's a place of faith uh, role there. In these communities, these are sort of the pillars that provide services, both um, the types of services that you need to be joyful and including food, healthcare, community, um, you know, these other things, but as well as, as sort of this idea of entertainment and education and, and everything else. And I, I thought about how schools were designed now in, in rural areas. We put them out on some far off campus, you know, 30, 30 minutes away from most houses. And then in urban areas, we build these like weird facilities that nobody's allowed to touch um, and use. And then if you walk the neighborhoods of, of poor communities, there's no entertainment. There's no like fun 
And there's, you know, there's occasional restaurants and a really crappy grocery store. Uh, but what, what do you what do you do for fun? And we thought, okay, if, the, if you have capitalized per student about a ten to twelve thousand, in at least in urban areas, that's what we see in Indiana, per student revenue source to provide them with education, but also pay for facilities and healthcare, food, and the other things. Um, could we combine that all into one space? And then could we have um, community organizations that are designed to, uh, you know, sort of optimize the use of housing and you know, vacant properties and, and other things, uh, depending on the zoning, could we work a relationship that sets precedent for the future of community development? So the community commons is that. I, I wanted answers to questions like, why isn't there a grocery store at school? There's a lot of people that need to eat there. Uh, is it potentially true that if we feed students twice a day, every day, five days a week, that a grocery store that could have a food preparation mechanism could, you know, revenue-wise survive in these low-resource neighborhoods as long as we were combining these these resources. Like, why, why build a, a grocery store two miles away when you could build it right inside of the school? And then I needed answers like, why isn't there a dentist at school? Yeah. Kids need to go to the dentist. Um, the reason they don't go is because it's not because they can't afford it. Low-resource kids can. It's, it's actually free uh, based on, you know, the, uh, the government systems that they have. But the, nobody takes them. So what if you could go to the dentist and period? Um, what if there was entertainment? What would that look like? Uh, and, and, you know, and what, what about tech companies and other companies that I've built um, or that are also you know, in this entrepreneur uh, system that we're in with startups and everybody's talking about these things? Like what if we had that ecosystem at a school? Like could we build class A facilities and then the lowest resource students in a city could, could go to school in a class A facility? The answer is yes. And uh, that's what the community commons is. It's it's taken almost four years to figure out all the reasons um, that people said that you can't do it. And usually, when somebody says no, I hear not yet. And uh, <laughs> it takes a little while to, to work through a no to a not yet because sometimes there's huge human systems in the way. I think I think the the mixed use approach where the bottom floor is entertainment based and food based. There's a grocery store. There's a basketball. Um, court that is used by the schools but also by the community uh, and some of the midnight basketball approaches that you can see in Chicago and Detroit and Pittsburgh and other places. Um, we have an eSports arena designed where you can play uh, all sorts of different types of games from what you see as the rise up of the eSports uh, competitions and, and among other things. And, and then afterwards you can have gaming, you can have video streaming nights with who, like you name it, you could do all sorts of stuff with huge 80, uh, 80 inch, you know, 4K TVs. Um, and then the food is, it is interesting. You could have a ghost kitchen that feeds the community, right? We all are now uh, aware of, of the need of, of delivery systems for food because we've been ordering from our favorite restaurants uh, and using all different types of, of delivery systems. So a ghost kitchen, that is also a grocery store. That, that is a, an anchor tenant. And then the next two floors up is, is schools. Right now we have the, the letter of intent for two schools that represent K through eight. So we have a, a low resource community K through five school and a five through eight school. They combined forces to feed each other, um, both African-American owned. The top floor is the, all the, the companies that I own and some partner companies. And we all live in one ecosystem 
where we design the entire thing to be mixed use, where the professionals are using particular parts of the facility, the kids are using particular parts, and then it, it flips when, you know, uh, after hours sorts of stuff, then the community can use these facilities all at the same time. Rent's paid for, it's cheaper uh, for a school than any Class A facility would ever be, because they have the ability to, to raise, you know, 30-year fixed low-interest loans to pay for their facilities. Well, that means we can build Class A spaces faster, better, and uh, cheaper. And then we want half of the ownership to be uh, entities that are already in the neighborhood. This is all part of, of the design of, of the things that Sam and, and the rest of our team helps think through, which is how does the how does the community actually use high tech, high fiber connectivity? You know, what's what's the purpose of these institutions moving forward? It's certainly not what we've done over the last 40 years, is it? The, the idea of, of place of faith and how it was created uh, or a community center that, that surely we could do a lot of, a lot of things different uh, now that we have high-speed internet and we carry around supercomputers in our pockets. Isn't it time for us to lead and design differently? Um, we, we surely can't say, well, it's always been that way. Anybody that says that, like, turn off the mic. Like, I, I, don't, I don't think it's... <laughs> well, and I, I like that from the point of view of being a parent, like, I love the idea of wherever I go to work, I'm, I'm walking my kids to school and then going upstairs and going to work. And it's also, you're providing a lot of jobs to a community that unless you had a bachelor's degree in teaching might not otherwise exist. Right. That's another thing that Sam's group helped me understand, you know, back to your previous question, is we, for the first time, have blurred the lines between mom and teacher, mm. right? So COVID, it made it happen. Now that if we have the, the you know, and, and a, a high-powered working mom um, is still the chief academic officer of the home, irregardless of what she's doing um, professionally. So there's always been that role, but now it's blended because she had to like balance a Zoom call with wrestling her five-year-old who's crying and you know has to get on a Zoom call and she's crying because she's got to go get on a Zoom call. <laughs> There's a kindergartner that's, you know, the kindergarten teacher that's trying to be super pumped about waving a fedora on <laughs> Zoom, and this sucks for everybody. But we blurred the lines for, you know, the initial uh, approach to that. We blurred the lines from what we thought family and school was, and now parents are more integrated in understanding. Like, what do you mean my kid's done by 11? Like, what the yeah. hell did they do? All? Yeah. Right. <laughs> if that's true. Then. Why not go to work and your kid gets to be there where you are? Yep. Because don't you want to spend more time with our children? Now, you need time uh, as yourself to be a, a good dad, a good husband, a good mother, a good you know employee, a good business leader. You need time uh, outside of just raising children all, all day long. I believe that that's true. But if you could have lunch with your kid twice, three times a week and build relationships with them at work um, and really spend that, you know, uh, intentional time. Why? Why wouldn't you do that? Absolutely. Right. Yeah, I think and there's. Why don't you build society that way? Yeah. Right. There's a lot of a lot of learning we've done over the past year in where we place our value, and familial mm. values has been something that a lot of people have shifted their perspective on, which is just incredible that it it's it's sad and incredible that it took the year 2020 <laughs> a pandemic <laughs> and, and all of it. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Well, but and speaking of the pandemic, I know, you know, Crossroads was started long before COVID hit, um, but I would imagine the pandemic 
um, a silver lining of the pandemic has been, I would imagine it's been a booster for you guys because people have been forced to kind of think in very practical terms about the concepts that you had already been presenting. Yeah, uh, I don't want to say this in a way that sounds incredibly arrogant, but uh, we, we kind of felt like like people caught up. Yeah. Like, oh, well, virtual learning is a thing. We, we've been doing that since 2015. Like when Zoom first got started, you know, I was one of the first users. Um, and, and everybody was like, why would we meet on Zoom when we could just meet in person? I'm like, because you don't have to drive an hour. To <laughs> we can hang out and then you can go get a coffee and save two hours of driving. Doesn't yeah. that sound awesome? Yeah. And, you know, I, 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 I believe in the, the personal interactions and relationships that are possible between you and I being in the same room. That's very valuable. But it is not as valuable as we've made it in the past where we're flying people you know, a million miles to different things to, to seal deals. Like we can do it totally differently. And, and um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting how the, the catch up was part of it, but then the opportunity was another. So a, a standard human entity wants to stay the same because human beings love safety. I'm wired completely differently. Like I, that, that sounds horrible. Like doing the same thing over and over again. Let's, let's not ever do that. Uh, and, and the way I'm wired, but we got forced to do di differently. And then when people get forced, they kind of go, Oh, this, this is, this works or this sucks. Let's fix that. And then next thing you know, people are saying, well, I, I like my kid living at home and, and going to school and you know, she's introverted. And it's exhausting for her to go to school and balance relationships all day. Yeah. When I've, what I've found is that she's at home and she thrives. Well, isn't that true that human beings deserve to be treated in ways where the neurodiversity is supported and, and, and your emotional needs are supported? Like forcing kids to go to school because it's socializing them uh, is a ridiculous way of thinking about it. Like if your kid is neurodiverse and, and, and introverted and it doesn't get filled up by being around 400 other kids every day, why, why force her to do that? She's going to get socialization because humans are pack animals. Like they're going to find small networks of friends. They're going to build deep relationships with, with adults. Like right. this is all part of it. Yeah. Well, well, you know, we, we sort of push this narrative even further because we got finally the opportunity for schools that did catch up in their understanding. But then of course we're out, doing things, another two standard deviations beyond like outsourcing your entire math department to us. Um, I, I, I thought that would take another seven years to get there, if I'm being honest. And then we started making phone calls, you know, mid-summer of 2020 and saying, your whole math department quit. You're our client. Why don't, why don't we run it for you? And that way you never have to hire and on the open market these like one-off professionals again. And luckily, we had a few clients go, you're right. Let's do this. And next thing you know, we're in you know a whole bunch of schools running those types of programming that brings a division of labor into the education system that it was unheard of six months ago. Uh, and now we have schools calling us. Like that never would have happened without COVID yeah. and, and what's done to our ecosystems. You know, one thing that I love when we talk on these on the Square episodes, we always talk about 
how COVID wasn't a, the thing that forced us to do this. Yeah. You know, all, a lot of these technologies, a lot of these behaviors were already in play already and COVID existed. was just a catalyst yeah. and, to accelerate them. Right. And what Kevin is talking about with focusing on neurodiversity, with, you know, focusing on getting technology democratized to students that really need it. I mean, he's been working on that for years and it's just a true testament to the fact that we weren't forced to this type of situation, we were already headed that way. And it's just, you know, taken a little bit of time for us to step back and say, okay, this does work. So let's make it work better. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm really excited to see what Crossroads is doing and where you guys are taking all of your um, initiatives. I'm curious, is there, I mean, there's, there's such a focus. You're both an educator and you have a focus on education. Is there an educator that stands out in your mind from when you were in school as somebody that encouraged you or challenged you? You know, I've always thought about that. And, and the reason I thought about it is slightly different than maybe how others think about it. Um, I think about creating technologies and teams and operations that make the teacher uh, as happy as possible. And then, you know, makes the students therefore as happy as possible. So you think about the, the, uh, the stakeholders that you're creating technology for and I, I had to reflect, of course, in my own experiences. And, and this was something that I asked a lot of teammates over the years and, and designers and groups that I've gotten a chance to work with was, tell me, and maybe this is part of a, of a dialogue just to, to prove this out, who was your all's favorite teacher, right? And then tell me why. And, and you, can, you, you just thought of who it was, I guarantee it. And you, you even know their name, you remember it, you remember how they dressed, what they looked like, but tell me why they were, were that important to you. And then maybe that makes a point. So let me, let me be the interviewee for, or interviewer for. Well, mine's gonna be uh, a say, little bit of a cheat because it was my mom I was homeschooled. <laughs> <laughs> but but, but I, I know exactly what you mean. And, and I've often thought because she homeschooled um, intermittently all uh, five of my brothers and sisters and myself. And um, she, um, actually never she got through her senior year of education uh, of college and um dropped out to marry my dad and it was she had a she was doing a degree in special education and was an incredible teacher and then just recently went back and got the credits to finish her college education but here we are you know being educated by somebody that didn't have a college degree and you know we've got two in the medical profession one we just kind of have a whole spread between my brothers and sisters doing things that wouldn't have happened without my mom teaching us. I didn't realize that she was in special education because mm -hmm. my mom is also, oops, my mom is also in special education <laughs> oh, really? yeah. and my sister's a teacher. So I could say that they are most influential to me, but since Brandon took that, I will mention that um, I can remember every single teacher's name that I've had and I have a terrible memory, but I remember them um, because they taught me something. And the one that I remember every single day, if I ever have to multiply seven times eight, <laughs> I think of my third grade teacher, Miss Honaker, Tracy. I get to call her Tracy now. And cause she would do a little song to teach me how to multiply <laughs> and she would dance to it. And it's just in my head. I use it every day. I've told her that for years. And I, I don't know if she's embarrassed or now she just owns it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's how I remember her. <laughs> so really interesting, both of you, I was watching your body language. Like there's a lot of joy in this memory, right? So you think about your mom and, and the, the outcomes and, and there's joy in um, somebody that made you better. Uh, so 
think about all of those memories and the joy that made you better. That's a teacher. Very little of that has to do with how good at math she was or how good at science they were. So this idea that, that, that the greatest teachers in our lives have to be PhDs in mathematics, like you need a PhD in a room to learn something, what a ridiculous idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, universities are built on that idea. Uh, no offense to universities, but that's a bad <laughs> Uh, so what is the most important thing about building joyful adults and, and productive citizens? It's that you have connection, right? That you have people that care about you and help you become a better uh, sort of version of yourself. Uh, that, that doesn't come from high content knowledge. That comes from people that actually care and building relationships and, and those sorts of things. School should be based on that. It should be based on building relationships with children between adults and children. Yes, mathematics and reading and these other things are important, but those become possible when your sense of self is secured. And once you have a sense of self security, among other things, your basic needs are met, then you can learn anything because you are as close to me cognitively uh, as every other human in this world. But, you know, when people say, well, you know, you, you introduce me, it's like, oh, he's got a PhD, and he's, he's obviously smart. Well, that's ridiculous. What what I am is secured. I got secured early because I won the lottery with parents. Um, I had a community that supported me to be secure, and then I was able to go and read and develop and be curious. Uh, curious is such an, an amazing mm-hmm. privilege that I get to I get to carry. I mean, to this day, I read you know a ton of books a week, and and you know. I can only do that because I'm secured and my emotional security, uh, irregardless of anything horrible that happens to me, uh, which will, it turns out that being a good person doesn't guarantee that you <laughs> don't have bad things happen to you. Uh, who knew? Uh, but the security that I carry um, allows me to continue to be curious, even in times of great distress like deaths of family or, or other things that happen to you that are traumatic. Uh, I think that's the key and our school could be that place of security and emotional security and development and, and understanding the neurodiversity of, of needs. and uh, But man, did we fail at that right now. Like we just mm-hmm. we just run kids through a, a manufactured train at school, don't care about their individualization. And we actually tell them that it's bad that that you, you have, you know, you shouldn't search out your own needs, right? You should be this group and this group think. And then we make sheep out of people and then we wonder why as adults they're sheep. Like it's, we made them that way. Yeah. Like no year old is a sheep. They want to know everything. They want to eat paste and color things. Like <laughs> we beat them. Uh, you know, and then we wonder why. Yeah. Uh, when they're adults, they they can't make their own decisions and and be autonomous learners. Like come on. So knowing that and knowing that you are looking at helping kids become more self motivated and to become curious learners, you know, what's your hope for the next five years of education? or maybe the next era of education, if you will. Yeah, that's that's the, that's the thing I get to do, right? So as a CEO, you build operations and teams to do what we need to do today to continue to drive value for our clients, and, and then I get to live five years ahead. Um, of course, a five years ahead for us is to continue to work with groups like you, Sam, and um, get those outside influences that help the creative process continue to be exceptional. Um, we're building right now what I think the future of ed is. So the operating system, um, the smart classroom, right? Do, do the one-to-one equivalencies, this helps people understand. 
the phone was talking and hearing from people at distance. It changed the world. Um, and it was as simple as, you know, a receiver to your ear and mouth. Then it became a smartphone. We're in the evolution of the smart education system, the smart classroom. The classroom used to be a, you know, mouth and receiver for, for uh, pontificating or lecture, which I, I, uh, I find horrible. <laughs> in all That's certainly where fun goes to die always. But it was the... It was the idea that we had to have a sage on the stage to, to pontificate on, on certain content and be the most educated person in the room or whatever. Um, the smart classroom of the future understands that lecture is very limited, that a human beings sharing things through filtered lenses and, and biases is never going to be the way to ubiquitously um, or provide equity in a system. So now we have multiple access points. What does the smart classroom become that was you know, from the analog classroom? Well, I think we're making that. It's a blended learning experience. It involves virtual experiences, VR experiences through Oculus 2, uh, the Quest, and, and these other uh, devices. Human relationships experiences, where adults are building relationships with kids, and we understand that kids want two things. They want connection, and they want to be able to grow up and be an adult. Like That's, that's what they need, right? And, and so adults need to be that. Uh, content is going to be access point through technology, through conversations, through peer tutoring, through evolutions. Uh, I think kids can move through the basal curriculum that we've done in the old analog system very fast. Uh, and then we get to do apprenticeships. We get to do things with work-based learning where a young, talented kid would get to work on Sam's team and help develop ideas um, and come up with new design concepts. And then I, I think the next part is what's the operating system behind that smart classroom? So, you know, when smart phones were created, yes, there's a device, but the operating system, the apps, these um, these things that make that device, you know, excel and uh, why we all have them in our pockets now and can't live without them. Uh, I think the smart classroom is what we're making, but the operating system is incredibly interesting to me. How do we build models of students and what they need, both intellectually but socially, emotionally? How do we build models of what they communicate and how they communicate and then structure their, their classroom experience to be scheduled based on their needs and based on the ability resource-wise to provide that. Um, we're working on that literally like right now and we we're super pumped that everybody caught up to the, the other parts of what we were doing, but now we're five years thinking ahead of what does the operating system of a smart classroom need to be? How does it look? What are the machine learning algorithms that could drive this that are ubiquitous in other um, you know, industries like marketing and these other things where we've built identity graphs and learning profiles on people for years? Yeah. Well, why don't we do that in education? Yeah. Why don't we build what you actually need? And uh, we think that personalization, building what you need emotionally, will get us closer to uh, adults that are joyful. And uh, if I could live in a world where more adults are joyful, that's a world I want to work for. If you can't memorize uh, your multiplication facts and, and spit them out, uh, you know, in a minute to do a hundred, like I'm, I'm cool. I'm, I, I think that's fine. <laughs> Kindness is something that exudes from you, and you're empathetic and um, filled with grace. Like that's that's a world I'd love to live in, and I think that's built from from a smarter system that understands education's role in co-parenting and co-raising uh, young people. 
Well, as a dad of two, I certainly hope that that's what comes to happen because I totally agree with you. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for being with us. It's been an incredible conversation. Sam, thank you for being back with us. And thank you for watching The Square. Now, if you're watching this in the video form, um, you're only getting a part of our full conversation. So make sure to check out um, on Apple Podcast as well as whatever podcast platform you use, The Square Podcast, to get the audio version, which is the entire conversation. We hope you join us next week.